35. And let's go down to verse, I believe it's 8. And uh, Marilyn wanted me to use the words meta-narrative and reification in a sentence, and so I will. Reification and meta-narrative are very difficult words. That's my sentence. Now you know what I used to do in fourth grade when the teacher would say, use this word in a sentence. There's always a way, always a way. Okay. Uh, Meta-narrative, of course, meaning the whole story. That's one of the things I think is missing sometimes when we talk about God. What is the story? What is it that we need to do? And sometimes I think about that song. If you're uh, of a certain age, you remember singing the song, He's Everything to Me. And uh, in the stars his handiwork I see on the wind he speaks with majesty. Though he ruleth over land and sea, what is that to me? Remember that? I will celebrate nativity, for it has a place in history. Sure, he came to set his people free, but what is that to me? Then by faith I met him face to face, and I felt the wonders of his grace. Now, think about this line. Then I knew that he was more than just a God who didn't care, who lived uh, way up there. Okay? And then it, of course, goes on. I think that there are a lot of people that will acknowledge the existence of God, but he's a God who lives way out there. He's not really all that involved in our life. And uh, if you're you know, lucky, they might say, you might know him or have some sort of faith in him, but what does he really do? So that uh, leads to some questions tonight that I want to try to answer. That uh, Why should we fear God? You know, we sing about fearing God. We read Bible verses about fearing God. And maybe the question comes up, why? And maybe there are people in your own family, people in our church, people certainly out in the world that, well, why, why should I fear this God? And you remember in the story where Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, this is what the God, the true and the living God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's question is, who is this God that I should obey him or do what he says in other words he was saying you got to be kidding i have no idea what you're talking about and i think a lot of people when they think about god they're going by little things that they've heard things that they've seen in movies things that grandma used to say bumper stickers things like that and so the concept of fearing god well why why should i fear a god like that and then think about uh, this then also, why should I surrender to him? I mean, you know, what, what makes his opinion, what makes his will any different or any better than mine? And a lot of people see themselves as equal to God because they've been told for decades now by the New Age movement and influences in our particular uh, culture that God is within you, and they don't mean that he indwells us. They mean you actually are God, and you're just as much God as anybody else or even the God that is in the Bible. So why should I submit? I wouldn't submit to you. Why should I submit to this God that you talk about? And uh, why should we trust him? What has he done to really show that he is worthy of our trust? I mean, I prayed for a Maserati and I don't have one. Why should I trust God? What does he really do? I prayed for grandma and she still died. That's a big one, isn't it? For a lot of people. And so uh, why should I trust this God who 
uh, we would never really say it this way, but it kind of comes across, why should I trust a God who won't do what I tell him? Well, that's blasphemous, isn't it? And uh, why should I proclaim God? What is there about him that should fire me up as a believer to go out and tell people about him or to preach him in a hostile culture and a hostile climate? The Apostle Paul told the preacher Timothy, you need to preach the word and you need to be, the King James says, instant, in season and out of season. In other words, you've got to be ready to do it and you've got to do it whether it's fashionable or not. There was a time in our culture when it was fashionable to preach the word of God. Not so much now. And what is our response to that? Keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and so we want to keep proclaiming the word of God. But our psalmist tells us something tonight that the Israelis of his day needed to know, and they needed to know these things in order to answer these questions. Israel's history was, you know, off and on, up and down. Sometimes they were very, very good, other times not so much. And uh, the people would say, well, why should I trust this God instead of a Canaanite God? I mean, after all, um, you know, we were praying for rain. And when we went to the temple and prayed for rain, nothing happened. But the Canaanite neighbors went and they offered a sacrifice to Baal. And boy, the sky opened up. Why should I surrender to trust, fear, and uh, proclaim this particular God? So the psalmist said... Let's have a history lesson. Let's go back and talk about what we've been through as a nation, what we've been through as the people of God. So let's pick up in verse 8. And it says, He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Verse 9, He sent signs and wonders, we're used to calling them plagues, signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and all his servants. That's a big range from the head guy all the way down to the smallest. Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 10. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. Sihon the king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan. Verse 12. And gave their land as a heritage a heritage to Israel, his people. So what the psalmist is doing is basically pointing out to his contemporary audience because they were like us. We tend to define history by when we have lived and what we have experienced. That's the same thing they did. And so he is taking them back and he's basically saying this, if there were not a God who is worthy of your praise... That's what this whole psalm has been about. If you don't need to fear him, surrender to him, and proclaim him and all of those things that we talked about, then here's the deal. You would not be here. They were in a land that was given to them. They were in a land that the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God certainly didn't want to give up. And you, people with your DNA, your ancestors, were slaves in a world empire called Egypt with a very powerful man named Pharaoh who was not very um, 
happy about letting you go. And so he's telling them, have you noticed where you're living? Do you know how you got here? Because if we don't know how we got here, we probably are not going to appreciate it. Anybody kind of see a contemporary problem with that? And we don't understand today that we didn't just get born and America is like every other nation and we have all these rights and freedoms and prosperity just because we're who we are. No, it was a hard, hard thing to get us to this place. And now we're very spoiled and unappreciative and a lot of that is because we don't know our own nation's history, do we? People don't understand what it cost to get us to this place. And I'm afraid that even a lot of young people today don't even know their own family's history. What did grandpa or great-grandpa do in Korea? Why was he there? How did he get that, if you're talking about my dad, that huge scar on the back of his left shoulder? How did all that happen? How did it happen for the people that were in Vietnam? How did it happen for people in Iraq and Afghanistan and, um, you know, all of those places. What about Germany and Japan? What about going all the way back to World War I, Spanish-American War, and, and on back to the American Revolution? We don't really understand what role our people have played in that. Our family members, people that gave us their DNA, who laid down their lives on the line for us to have everything that we have today. I don't think people today appreciate just the fact that there was somebody in our family who got up every day, packed a lunch, and went to work, and they were building the skyscrapers and building the automobiles and farming and doing those kind of things that we take for granted that we don't necessarily want to do, and thankfully we can do something else. We're not all just tied in and locked into all of that but they don't know the history of all of that. They don't appreciate where we are and what we have. But those of you who do know it, you do have an appreciation for what we have and who we are and what your family has been through. And that is what this psalmist is trying to get across to the people of Israel. Hey, you punk generation who thinks that everything has been like this forever. You've got land, you've got crops, you've got borders, you've got a nation, you've got a king, you've got a government, you've got a temple, you've got all of these things. Do you think that just happened? Think that just happened? I know uh, over the years of my ministry, I think there are some people who never realize all of the work that goes on behind the scenes in a church or to host a church event. It's not like angels just come down and poof, everything's set up. People volunteer. People work in all of that. There are people in the nursery tonight that are volunteering. People with our children that are volunteering. All of these things have to happen because people get involved in them. They don't just happen just because we want them or we think they ought to or because we say somebody ought to do it. It boils down to us being faithful. And the people, even back then in Israel, didn't quite get all of that. They thought they were just privileged. And indeed they were, of course. But they thought that somehow that was because of who they were. Who they were. And Israel, the uh, Jews, were uh, no different than anyone else. Sinners that had to be saved 
by the grace of God or they would still be in Egypt and they would be wiped out and we never would have heard of them. And so uh, the psalmist goes back to kind of reiterate the history, but I want you to notice the history that he gives is a little different than some of the histories we give. We may give a history and we talk about ourselves. This is what I did when I was a kid. This is the way I lived. This is the way my parents were. And that's not, I'm not uh, discounting that. I think that's important. People need to know that. But you'll notice when the psalmist writes about it, the subject matter is God, God himself, and what God did for all of, that, all of us. And I think sometimes in Christian families, we raise children that know about God, but they don't know what God has done for us. We don't share enough of our testimony with our own kids. We don't share enough of our experiences with our own kids. We don't tell those stories about what God has done. So that was the problem they had. Moses had told them in Deuteronomy, when you get into the new land, the promised land, you are to tell your children all of these things when they're standing up, when they're sitting down, when they're going in and coming out, whatever it is. In other words, find a reason and find a way to tell the story of what God has done for you. When they came across the Jordan River with Joshua, the first thing they did was to set up memorial stones. Now the stones wouldn't say much, but they would engender questions. Somebody might go, Dad, what is that for? And they, oh, that's where we came across the river during the flood stage under our great leader Joshua. They was to remind them, so they constantly were talking about what God had done. That's why we have worship services. That's why we read from the Word of God. That's why eventually synagogues were built. It was to keep the knowledge of God and what He had done always before the people and always before the various generations. And so this is just a heads up and a reminder on that. So why? Why should we do that? Here's number one. Because God holds the power of life and death. Now, for a lot of people, you would think, oh, I think you should have said because God loves us. Well, see, in that, it almost makes the subject of the sentence us. And we may be the object of his love, but we're not the, we're not the subject of that sentence. God is. But we forget that and we tend to make it more about us and we kind of deify ourselves in some way. And uh, notice that the psalmist starts off right here in verse 8 with God kills people. God kills people. Now, we also know from other things the Bible says, well, he's the only reason that there are any people because he created Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. And he is the one that we find places in the Bible where it says something like this, for the Lord opened her womb. The Lord closed her womb. And everybody that is born, including us, we are here by the creation of God and maybe we could put it this way, by the permission of God. And you've only got a certain number of days you were going to live. They're allotted to you according to Psalm 139 before you even have any of them. And there's a day that's going to come when you are going to leave the planet. And you're going to live either in heaven or live in hell, depending on whether you have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord or not. 
but that is in the hands of God. You say, well, uh, that's a kind, of, kind of a morbid thought. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, for those of us who know the Lord, then it means to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. That, that's not a morbid thought. That's a glorious thought to think that we'll be in his presence and we'll be in heaven forever. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, too, I look at my life and I'm kind of glad that Adolf Hitler's not around anymore. Kind of glad that Osama bin Laden is not around anymore. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Adam and Eve had eaten not only from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also from the tree of life so that nobody died and every evil, perverted, wicked, nasty person that had ever lived were still alive and more were being born every day? That would be a horrible thing. I'm glad that their time is limited. I'm glad there's not a, a Nebuchadnezzar, a literal Nebuchadnezzar still around. I'm glad there's not uh, literal people like that still around. I, I, it's good that they pass off of the scene. And who is it that controls that? It's God. It's God who does that. And so you have these people, and in our Sunday school lesson we've kind of been looking at uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who walk around Babylon and go, oh, this is my city that I built and look what I have done. And uh, he got a little bit big for his britches. And so what happened? God had a way of humbling him. And thankfully he trusted in the God of, of Judah. But so proud, so arrogant before that as though he were controlling everything. Well, we got to wake up sometimes and we have to come to the idea... And we have to come to the acknowledgement that we're not the ones who are in control. Some people live long, some people don't live long. We don't control any of that. That is within the hand of God. And it, so it says he destroyed, and the word destroyed is a Hebrew word that means he struck down. He's personally involved in this plague. The firstborn of Egypt, both from man and beast. Why would uh, we emphasize here, we know about the firstborn of the children, but what about the idea that the beasts are being killed too? Why would God do that? Is he not an animal lover? Uh, what, what is it that is supposed to be significant? It must mean something. Uh, let me give you a little quote from uh, Mr. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Okay? The Egyptians worshipped many animals, and when the firstborn of the sacred animals died the circumstance greatly increased the impressiveness of the plague as an assault upon the gods of Egypt. In other words, Egyptians valued the life of animals that they worshipped even over people. Well, I can't believe anybody would do that. And yet we do. Our culture does that, don't they? So we look at this and it's as if God is saying, I'm going to kill your firstborn, your pride and joy, the love of your life, the one who is going to inherit your kingdom if you're Pharaoh, and I'm going to take them. And just to put an exclamation point on it, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every beast and among those are going to be the ones that you worship. Enjoy bowing before a dead, rotting carcass of a God. 
Get it? And so the Lord was saying, uh, this is going to be something that Egypt is not going to forget. And I think also he does it that way because he doesn't want Israel to forget that either. And so he does something that is very dramatic. There was an old Puritan that said, Is God unrighteous then that taketh vengeance? No, this is an act of retribution. The Egyptians had slain the children of the Israelites, casting their infants into the river Nile. Now the affliction is turned upon themselves. The delight of their eyes is taken from them. All their firstborn are dead. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat upon uh, his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. And only Israel was spared by that. Do you think that was making a statement? And so why should this God be feared and worshipped, praised, revered, submitted to, proclaimed, all of those things? Because he and he alone has the power over life and death. You are not in control of that. Well, that gets your attention, doesn't it? Because all of us are going to die and we know that. And it doesn't just happen because of biology. It happens because of God. Number two. God has the power to destroy empires. Do you remember when it seemed unthinkable that there would not be a Soviet Union? Do you remember when Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire? And the media just went nuts. Oh no, he's going to get us bombed and all of that type of thing that went on. Do you remember, or maybe you, uh, well you remember when he stood in front of the Brandenburg Gate in West Berlin, Germany, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate, tear down this wall. Did you know that that was not in the speech? His speechwriters had taken that out. Do you know he added that in there? And they were thinking that it would be too pro provocative and that it would uh, mess up the relationship that we had with Gorbachev we finally had somebody we thought we could work with and that type of thing but it was only about a year or so later after he was out of office that they were standing on the Berlin Wall and they were chipping off souvenirs of the Berlin Wall and they were making openings in it where East Germans could come into West Berlin and families were reunited. And that uh, was kind of, uh, well, I guess Poland started it with the Solidarity Movement and then what happened in Romania. But Berlin was very, very dramatic and that pretty much was the end of the evil empire. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody thought that that was going to happen as soon as it did. And that's the same thing that would have happened to an Israeli in this psalm when you talk to them about the Egyptian empire. Well, it'll always be there. It's indestructible. It's been around for a long time. It will stay around for a long time. But not only did people think that about Egypt, but what about the Babylonian empire? Do you suppose when Nebuchadnezzar started conquering people and taking captives and building up Babylon and amassing territory, do you think that it seemed to those people in Daniel's era that there would be an end to that empire? But then along comes Darius the Mede and the Medo-Persian empire conquers the Babylonian empire. Well, where is that today? That's modern-day Iran. Well, they're a problem, but they're not an empire. 
Why? Because they got conquered by Alexander the Great. And the Grecian Empire came along and everybody got a Greek name and everybody started speaking Greek and it was a language of commerce and it was the, uh, all of the religion of the world was influenced by Zeus and Athena and all of the, you remember all of your Greek mythology and all of that, we still talk about it today. But it didn't last forever. There's not a Greek Empire now because along comes Rome and they conquer that and then they kind of Romanize all of the Greek culture, kept most of it, but sort of Romanized it. And it seemed like it would never, ever fall. And we could go on and on and on with empires that, like the Soviet Union, are on the ash heap of human history. Why? Because God, the Bible tells us, raises up kings and he throws down kings. He takes kingdoms and he plants them and he also uproots them. Washington, D.C., all of you who are elected, all of you who are bureaucrats, all of you who serve in the deep state, all of you who make your living off of the government, here's the word. America is not going to last forever and your work is not going to last forever because you're not in control of everything you think you rule over. Our God reigns. It also means to those of you who are terrified, oh, we might lose everything. Oh, everything might go away. I'll give you a comforting word. You're right. It is. Nations, empires don't last forever. But here's the good news. That's not in the hands of another political party other than the one you belong to. That's not in the hands of foreign dictators. It's not in the hands of capitalists or socialists or anybody else. Rest and rest easy tonight when you go to bed because this is in the hands of God. And America will not fall until God is ready for her to fall. So in the meantime, enjoy your liberty. Enjoy your prosperity. Enjoy the blessings that God has given you because whether the culture rec uh, recognizes it or not, you and I know this. God established our nation and this nation will not fall until God is ready for it to fall. And in the meantime, He has given us all these things freely to enjoy, as Paul told Timothy. And so God has the power to destroy empires. It says in verse 9, He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. Boy, that's big time. This Pharaoh who looked at Moses and said, Who is God that I should obey him? Well, he found out. He found out. It became very, very clear. People like Nebuchadnezzar who had the idea that I conquered you and I plundered your temple, therefore my God's bigger than your God. He found out seven years of living like an animal, being out of his mind, he found out who God is. And the same thing is going on today. You might be surprised if you knew how and where and in whom God is at work in our world today. There are a lot of impossible people that got saved in the Bible. 
One of them was named Saul of Tarsus. And you would have never pictured him becoming a Christian, serving Jesus and being a part of the church. Never. Impossible. He's a Pharisee. Well, that's probably, uh, they said it was impossible about Nebuchadnezzar too and other people. And we see that God is doing impossible things and he may be doing some things that are even impossible in you because he is showing his power and might because with God, nothing is impossible. So think about that and uh, consider these unconquerable kingdoms. They fall. And these impossible people get saved. It's an amazing thing. Have faith. Number three. God is unimpressed and unhindered by powerful people. Oh, if we only had Hollywood's money and influence. That doesn't matter to God. He's not impressed and he's not hindered by that. Oh, if we only had the political power and the clout that maybe the Roman Catholic Church had in the Middle Ages. God's not impressed by that. He's not hindered by anything like that because that's not the way that he works. You'll notice in verse 10 it says, He defeated many nations. Wow, he can do that? That's what he did. And he slew mighty kings. Really? God does that? That's what it says. And it starts out with this general thing. And, you know, Israel was probably tempted to kind of go like, "Ah, yeah, well, I know God can. And then he goes on down to say, let's get specific and name some names you would recognize. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. You say, they don't sound familiar to me. Read Numbers 21, okay? Children of Israel are coming out of Egypt. They're heading to the promised land. And they say, can we go through your land? And these kings not only said no, but they brought their army out to oppose them. And uh, Israel wasn't equipped to fight. And yet they won. Why? Because they didn't win the battle. God did. How many times does God say the battle is not yours, but it is whose? Mine. We don't believe that like we should. And so the psalmist reminds them, and he says, and by the way, he did that in all the kingdoms of Canaan. That's why you are in the land today. We forget that. So the psalmist starts general, and then he gets very specific, and then he talks about the many nations, and not just any old king, but mighty kings. Then he names them, Sihon and Og and all of the kingdoms of Canaan. Uh, read you a quote here. Notice is taken of two kings, Sihon and Og, as being more powerful than the rest, but because shutting up the entrance to the land in front, uh, they were the most formidable enemies met with, and the, uh, and the people, meaning Israel, besides were not yet, here's word of the day, habituated, that means accustomed, to war. Okay? So why would these kings be brought up? Because they were the biggest barrier to Israel getting to the Jordan River and crossing it. Og and Sihon. And Israel was not equipped and ready to fight it. You ever felt like that? I've had times in my life where I go, this is an insurmountable obstacle and here comes a battle that I'm not equipped to fight. 
you know what? That's not all bad because that's really who we are. Really who we are. And it's at that point that we are forced to have faith in God and to call upon Him and to trust Him. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do because He is the one that moves the mountains. We sang about that earlier, didn't we? And He's the one who wins our battles. He's the one who overcomes the enemy. In fact, our enemy, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, has already been overcome by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Rest in Him. Serve Him and worship Him. We could kind of summarize this little section by saying, any nation, leader, or movement that gets in the way of God's plan is doomed. Let that sink in. Doomed. They're not going to prosper. Number four. God is, this is the positive point, God is passionate about His promises. He's not haphazard. He doesn't have to be forced. He doesn't have to be reminded. Some of the people that I've seen on TV and other places, they act like we need to take the Scripture and jam it up God's nose so He doesn't forget about us. Really? That's your view of God? That if you don't remind Him, He'll forget? Is your view of God that God really doesn't want to be held to His Word, but if you can force Him, He'll finally go, okay, 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 I'll do it. It's written down, I kind of have to. But if you didn't bring it to His attention, He would just go, ha, got by with that one. This isn't fine print. This isn't something that somebody's looking for a loophole. God's not looking for a way out of all of this. In fact, God is passionate about His promises. Look at the next verse. Notice how it's put. He uses a term here that, that kind of uh, ought to wake us up. Verse 12. And gave their land, the Canaanite land, how, what, what did He do with it? He gave it as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his people. What's a heritage? In Bible terms, it's an inheritance. He gave it as an inheritance to his people. So, well, didn't it belong to the Canaanites? No. Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He let the Canaanites live there for several hundred years... But God owned it. And God said, I made a promise hundreds of years ago to a guy named Abraham and I'm going to keep it. Canaanites, you're out and you're at the end. Your iniquity has been fulfilled anyway. I'm judging you and I'm giving this land flowing with milk and honey to my people and it is their inheritance. You ever known anybody that was able to leave an inheritance to their children? What do they do? Generally, I'm sure there are exceptions because we're all imperfect people, but generally people who have that, they have their estate plan in order. They have a will, right? They have a trust. They have several of those things. They have it put in a place where it can be found and it will state in there who gets what and they want that to be passed on. They don't want it to be wasted. They don't want the government to get it. They don't want any of that. They want that inheritance to go to their descendants. And they pay a lot of money for that. They have lawyers involved in that kind of thing. And they have it put in a place where it can be found. They may even talk to their children about it. And by the way, 
I think uh, Dave Ramsey has a great idea on that. He said this idea of you die and then you get together in the lawyer's office and you open up the will and everybody waits with bated breath to see what they got. He goes, don't do that. He goes, that makes a good movie, but that's, not, that's stupid, he said. So you know what you ought to do? Read your will to your children while you're still alive and tell them who's getting what and why. He said, it's powerful when you look at little Junior in the face and say, you are not getting what you would like to have because you're a crack addict and I'm not going to finance your bad habit and your death. Now, there's a provision in here that if you get straightened up, your brother over here is going to have part of your inheritance in an account and he'll give it to you then, but not until then. That way nobody has to sit around and fight and get mad and everything like that. You make it clear what you want. Not a bad idea, is it? Why do people do that? Why does he say to do something like that? Because generally we're passionate about what we leave behind, who gets what and why on that. You think God's any different about his inheritance? Do you think God is sitting in heaven saying, uh, ah, maybe, maybe not? Or do you think maybe because God looked at Israel as his children, he even calls them his firstborn? That's interesting because in Egypt, the firstborn were being thrown into the Nile and then God says, you're treating my firstborn with contempt. I'll show you who's boss here, right? And so the firstborn of Egypt were killed. And you think about the fact that God says, I'm taking my children, Israel, out of Egypt. And there's nothing left up to chance. Yes, they camp by the Red Sea by the direction of God. And yes, the Egyptian army is coming after them. And it looks like doom and gloom in the end. And what are we going to do? But God will make a way where there seems to be no way. We sing that song. And he parts the Red Sea and they go across on dry land, saved once again. They're in the desert. The wilderness is desert. It's not Daniel Boone territory. It's desert. There's nothing out there. And they're going through the desert and they're going, I'm so thirsty. Oh, you remember what it was like when we could get water anytime we wanted? What has Moses done? Has he brought us out here to die? And God says, I'll show you. And God brings water out of the rock to, uh, give, to quench the thirst of two million Israelis and their livestock. It wasn't just a little rock with a little stream of water like a drinking fountain. I mean, there was gushing water coming out of that in the middle of the desert. They said, what are we going to eat? We're so hungry. Oh, remember what it was like in Egypt? Well, they should have remembered what it was like in Egypt. It wasn't the way that they romanticized it. But we all do that, don't we? I've heard people talk about the Great Depression like it was the greatest time of their life. Yet they don't want anything like that again. Why? Because we tend to remember the good and we tend to make it better than it was. And that's what they were doing about Egypt. So what does God do? He provides manna for them. Later, he provides quail for them. As they're going through on their way into the promised land and they have these kings, Sihon and Og, and they come up against them. And not only do they say, no, you cannot pass through our territory, but we're going to kill you. Well, they found out in a hurry. God is bigger than anything that they want to do. And all of this happens to bring them to the place where Joshua is going to take them over the Jordan River. Another barrier. The Jordan's at flood stage. Oh, what's, what's up with this? 
You know, bad leadership, bad timing. Who, who came up with this so that God could show them, I'm with Joshua just like I was with Moses. Remember what Moses did at the Red Sea by my power? Watch this. And God parted the Jordan River the same way he did the Red Sea, and they went across. You remember Jericho when they looked at that and an entire generation missed the promised land because they said, oh, they're walled cities. They're just so big and these people are like giants. Joshua and Caleb said, our God is able. And they were the only ones who went across. And they marched around the great city of Jericho for seven days. And then seven times on that seventh day. And then they blew the, they heard the trumpets and then they shouted. And uh, what happened? The walls? I knew you would say that. Came tumbling down. What is God doing in all of this? He's saying, you're going to ask questions. What have you done for us? Why should we trust you? Why should we fear you? Why should we surrender to you? Why should we proclaim you? And God is telling them, because I've got your life in my hands. It's because empires rise and fall by my command. Because I am unintimidated and unhindered and unafraid by the things that terrify you. And because you are my child, I will not let one promise go by without being fulfilled because you may not think about the promises of God but he does and he your father will give you your inheritance every bit of it and he is passionate about that and he's going to make sure that it's done that's the children of God and that's the great God that we serve and so the little kids were right and they folded their hands and in front of their stale cookies and wheat Kool-Aid, they said, God is great, God is good. That's really as far as you have to go. Why? Why do we do these things? Because our God is a great God, but He is also a good God, and He loves us with an everlasting love. Now, I dare you go out and be down in the mouth. I dare you go out and be all defeated about everything after reading that what's wrong lift your head up let it sink into your heart put your armor on and go forth in the name of the lord because we have a great god who is a good god and with all of his power he loves you has you on his heart and will give you everything he has promised he is faithful. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for this tonight. I don't know who this psalmist was, and I don't know what the context is on which he was writing, but it sure is relevant to us, because we forget. We lose track. We let all of the great things that you have done for us just kind of fade off into the mist of the past. When it ought to be something that we think about, talk about, something that we stand on. And so, Father, help us to tell our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, as long as you leave us here on earth, about the greatness and the goodness of our great God. Let us tell other people. And let us be an example of how we ought to be. We talk about being God-fearing people. Do we really 
give you the honor that you deserve? Do we really understand as we watch world events how sovereign and in control you are over all of these things? Do we really? Do we really get it that what goes on in Washington and Beijing and Moscow and other places have absolutely no bearing on what your plan is or when you're going to do something or how you're going to do it because you rule and reign over them. And the only kingdom that is everlasting is yours. And thank you that when we were saved, you took us out of light, out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. And we are part of that kingdom. And as your children, we are royalty. And we are going to inherit everything you have promised. And you will not let one word fall or fail. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.